Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. From the beginning of time, the world has been plagued with the tendency to go off the reservation, so to speak, (laughs) from seeing and doing things God's way to seeing and doing things our way. Following his list of immoral behaviors in the first half of chapter 6 and getting ready for his teaching on marriage in chapter 7, Paul revisits the and broadens his discussion on sexual immorality from chapter 5. In the second half of chapter 6, where we are tonight, Paul gives a broader theological statement on Christian lifestyle as he challenges the church's misunderstandings and failures calling the believers to a life of physical purity that would conform to spiritual holiness. The way Christ followers use their bodies and their living situations reflects their relationship to Christ, directly reflects. The Christian faith leaves no room for a separation of body and spirit. And Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that Christian identity and Christian lifestyle go hand and hand. Christian identity becomes evident in a lifestyle that embodies the truth of God's word. If Paul were here right now, and if he were to use some language that we're familiar with, I would hear him say perhaps something like, cutting to the chase, here's the deal. God created sex, so therefore he has the right to tell us what to do with it. I think everyone agreed there were no amens, but I saw a lot of this. (laughs) He created our bodies, and one day he's going to resurrect them in glory in view of the fact that our bodies have such a wonderful origin and an even more wonderful future. How can we? Why would we use them for such selfish, sinful practices. Spiritual life cannot be separated from what we call the natural life. Rather than being spiritually irrelevant, the body is the domain of worship. Amen? We have just done that. It is the domain of worship. It is a place for God's presence to be revealed. Christian identity and Christian lifestyle are tightly interlocked. And that is not bondage, my friends, as the world would try to get us to accept, which they are stuck in. That is not bondage. It is actually true freedom. 
And Paul wants us to realize that freedom is not license. Let's look at verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but everything, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. A reading of Paul's letters, one might think that he had a really restricted and boring life. <laughs> but you know what? Nothing could be further from the truth, right? Paul had discovered being bound to Jesus was the most liberating experience there could ever be on the planet. It was for this reason that he refused to be in bondage to anyone else activity or substance that would have compromised his freedom that he so enjoyed. Which is why I think without a doubt, Paul was a preacher of Christian liberty. Amen? He was all about that. In one of his earliest letters, he wrote, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. That's Galatians 5 verse 1. By taking this verse completely out of context, a person could take and use what may have been a common slogan in Corinth in the day, which is what we have right here in verse 12. This, these words, I have the right to do anything, is believed by the scholars to have been a slogan that they kind of espoused and lived by there. And so one could take their, their liberty... And with that saying, and totally miss it and use that slogan there have here in defense of any kind of excessive lifestyle bent towards immorality. The Corinthian believers were caught up in sexual immorality because they not only misunderstood the gospel, they had totally misunderstood the freedom that Christ had given them. Therefore, Paul says, you might think you can do whatever you want. Not so, because not everything, he says, is beneficial. The word right here is actually a legal term and can be translated as lawful, as it is in the New King James Version. It means permissible okay so legality then is not the only test of what is right and wrong it must also be Paul says beneficial or or otherwise or other in other words helpful to others reflecting a biblical worldview as opposed to a secular one the Corinthians apparently misunderstood what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, then you are what? We were all in on the first part of Galatians 5.13 and may have completely turned a blind eye to the second part of Galatians 5.13. Here's what the verse says. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. The first part. They're all in on that one. <laughs> but <laughs> do not use your freedom to indulge 
the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. That's the second part. And no surprise to us, the word for love that Paul chooses to use here, writing to the Galatians, is the one of the highest and most supreme, unconditional, unselfish love, known as what? Agape love, God's love. Christ doesn't free us just so that we can do whatever we want. He doesn't free us to sin. He frees us from from sin. Amen? The Corinthians were using their freedom in Christ as a license to live any sinful way that they pleased. They were also, as we saw in our study from last week, suing each other in pagan courts, which was legal, my point for even bringing this up, which was legal, but not helpful to others. You guys see that? Or the cause of Christ. Paul continues, well, you say you've got the right to do anything. Hey, guess what? I've got the right to do anything, but I refuse. I will not be mastered by anything. Wow. We should not be controlled, this is saying to us, by or addicted to anything. And in this context, hear me now, legal or not. Amen? Legal or not, but rather according to what we find in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, we should, it says, instead be filled with the Spirit. This means under the control of the Holy Spirit. And some want to believe that they are free to do whatever they want, but the truth is, and this is the truth, everyone in the room knows it, either by experience from the old days or just by looking around. We all know this to be true. They wanted to have the freedom. They thought they were free to do whatever they wanted to do, but the truth is they were and are today, those who still want to em embrace this, are slaves actually, to what? To their passions and sinful desires. So you tell me who's the slave, who's in bondage, and who really is in freedom. Christian freedom is not doing something just because it feels good. It is the freedom to actually be able, the power to actually be able to say no. No to selfishness and sin. Whatever liberties believers have, choices must be carefully evaluated as to their spiritual benefit, both individually and corporately. The Corinthians were actually losing their freedom instead of gaining it. They thought differently, but in all reality, they weren't gaining in freedom at all. They were actually losing ground to engage in unrestrained immorality is to trade in our freedom of righteousness for the binding iron chains of lust. It's astonishing how we 
are so self-deceived, how self-deceived we can be when it comes to the distinction between freedom and bondage. How often do we act out as if to say, I'm going to have my own way. I don't care what you say, preacher. <laughs> I'm going to do it how I want to do it. We have somehow bought into the false idea that that's what freedom is. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's a lie from the pit. That is not what freedom is, when in reality, all we have done is bow the knee, surrender to the very thing we could not say no to. Greed, gluttony, pornography, gossip, addictions, or any other gratification to which we forfeit and yield our freedom. When believers don't use their freedom to serve God, they will serve themselves and then inadvertently will serve sin. And that's not freedom, folks. That's slavery. Verse 13. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. What we just saw here is there is and there was another slogan evidently being used in Corinth to support their promiscuity. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. You know what they're really saying? Peers the Corinthians intended these words to mean that sexual pleasure was meant to be enjoyed just as food is meant to be eaten. Combining the two. The Corinthians culture held the position that the act of physical intimacy was nothing more than the satisfying of one's physical appetite. No different than the need for food. Not so, Paul says. Physical intimacy involves the coming together not only of two bodies, but of two souls. The very essence of one's person. And the clincher, and the clincher, that which belongs to our Lord. The Corinthians were Greeks, and what do I mean by that? They believed, thanks to one of their philosophers known as Plato, that the body and spirit were totally separate. They believed whether they did what, what they did with their bodies didn't matter that it was a-okay and it didn't matter spiritually because they thought that there was this disconnect that existed between the two, the body and the spirit. We're going to say more about this by the time we're done tonight, but let me just for right now say this. We are created in the image of God, amen? Our God is a triune God, right? Father, Son, Spirit. And they are what? Inseparable. 
Now, since you and I are created in their image, we too then, being body, soul, and spirit, triune beings, are inseparable, impossible to believe and accept that truth that they were buying into, that Plato had convinced them of. You cannot, impossible, to separate body and spirit any more than you could separate the Trinity. Are you with me? Okay. Now, this is where they're coming from. This is what Paul is addressing in, that, in this sense. Their thinking was God created the stomach for food, and therefore he created the body for sex. Eat what you want. Sleep with whomever you like. However, concerning food and the stomach, Paul writes, God will destroy both of them. In other words, God will destroy both the passions and the physical bodies that house them. It will be as, as well, right, as those who are in Christ. In heaven, we will have spiritual bodies. Did you see what just happened there? In heaven. God didn't give us our natural bodies just so that we could fulfill our appetites and passions. This is why Paul writes, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Our bodies are to be used, Paul is saying, not for ourselves, not for our own pleasures, but for who? Our Lord. Used for Him. And the Lord cares about our bodies. They matter. Our bodies are to be used for serving and for worshiping God, not for sexual immorality. And so just because we have certain normal desires given by God at creation does not mean that we need to give in to them and always satisfy them at our any whim, at our every whim. Sexual intimacy outside of marriage is destructive. Because it actually will tear down what one could have in the future with regards to healthy and enriching, nourishing relationship. Did you hear me? However, it seems like nobody wants to believe this anymore. Do you find that to be true? Yeah. I don't know how many times in premarital counseling have not only I but Marilyn counseled and encouraged, pleaded at times for a couple to not go there. And if they already have, stop. Because thankfully there's forgiveness. Amen? But nobody wants to believe that anymore. All you got to do is look around and look at the results of that. Emptiness, brokenness, hurt, pain.
pain, shame. Divorce rate is up. Loving, enduring, God-honoring marriages seem to be down. More and more single-parent homes, less and less of Christ being the center of the home. And I believe this is directly connected to the moral looseness of our day. And even, sad to say, within the body of Christ. Which is why we must be aware of the seriousness of immorality. Look at verse 15 with me. It says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Sexual immorality not only jeopardizes what one's future could be in Christ, but it agonizes our holy king. Oh, how I wish more people would think of it in those terms. <laughs> how it agonizes our holy king as well. Paul is basically saying, don't you understand that you're bringing the holy and righteous one, Jesus Christ, into that very unholy situation? <laughs> Don't you know, he says, that if you're in, in an immoral situation, you place Christ right in it with you. May it never be. God forbid, Paul says. The concept is so shocking that we find Paul getting very, very blunt. Paul's words make it clear that believers are not merely spiritually joined with Christ. Believers are so intimately joined to him on every level of their being that even their physical bodies are united to him, being parts of his body on earth. So what we do with our bodies, you better believe, matters. We are Jesus' representatives on earth. So when believers are caught up in sexual immorality, it mars the world's view of Christ. Paul has more to say about this. Look at verse 16. Don't you know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said... The two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now I want you to remember, we, we talked about this when we started our study in Corinthians, that there was th this separation between spirit and body, and we mentioned again tonight, they thought that bodies that would eventually be destroyed could not possibly have any sort of eternal value. And Paul states, however, that believers' bodies are valuable because they belong to Jesus Christ. Their significance is not just eternal, but also apply to the here and now. And so Paul gets extremely blunt when he says, because believers' bodies are joined to Christ, they involve Christ himself in their relationships, even with prostitutes. This physical union with Christ makes it inconceivable that the sexual involvement with a prostitute is okay. Keep in mind that the sexual worship temple of Aphrodite, 
boasting its 1,000 prostitutes was in Corinth. In case you were wondering, why did Paul have to go to that subject? That's why. Because <laughs> it was obviously a problem in the city of Corinth. And should anyone here be thinking, oh, I'm a little off the hook because I'm not involved with the prostitute. <laughs> You're not off the hook. <laughs> and mo keep in mind, Paul is being extremely blunt, so he's taking it way out here, and it means like everything and everything in between. If it's not within the context of marriage, it's wrong. It's sexual immorality. From a biblical perspective, every sexual involvement outside the bonds of marriage creates a union between the participants and the Bible, what the Bible calls becoming one flesh. Taking us all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. In other words, sex is more than just a fun and harmless physical act. It involves the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. And so when a believer commits sexual immorality, the unthinkable happens because whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. You see the conflict. When we are saved, Jesus Christ takes up residence in our bodies, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Christianity 101, right? Therefore, what we do with our bodies, we do with Jesus Christ. In a way, we cannot fully comprehend when a believer commits sexual immorality, as I said a moment ago, the precious Holy Lord Jesus in the person of the Holy Spirit is dragged down into the immoral act. Such mistreatment of Christ is to be considered unthinkable and avoided at all costs. In fact, God commands in Romans 6, 13, do not offer the parts of your body to sin. Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. This means our bodies are to be used to do what is right and holy for him. To maintain moral purity, we must realize that our freedom is not license that we must be aware of the seriousness of immorality and resolve to use our bodies to honor him. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know? And by the way, this is now the sixth time in this chapter that Paul has used that phrase, do you not know? 
that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. Although the repercussions, I don't want anyone to misunderstand what I'm saying here, the repercussions of every sin, no matter what, are serious. Sexual sin is unique in that it's the only one where you, one sins against themselves. Interesting. While it is still true that no one sins unto themselves, always involves others, sexual sins come back at us as a double whammy. How so? Because we are made in the image, as I said a little earlier, in the image of our triune God. We are comprised of three parts. Body, soul, and spirit. God the Father created our bodies. God the Son redeemed them and made them a part of His body. And God the Spirit indwells our bodies and makes them the very temple of God. How can we then dare to defile God's temple by using our bodies for immorality? The truth is, each time one engages in immoral activity, a part of his or her soul is seriously impacted in a negative way. Meaning every time someone engages in sexual immorality, they give a little more of themselves away. Which is why, as we said a little bit ago, you see the emptiness, the hollowness, the brokenness. And what is supposed to be fun and exciting somehow doesn't ever end up to be that. Paul warned that sexual sin involves the, the whole person. Being male and female involves the total person. Therefore, sexual experience affects the total person. Sexual union outside of marriage violates one's body by bringing it into a wrongful, again, as the Bible tells us, a wrongful one flesh union. It is in this sense that sexual immorality is a unique sin against the body. It violates the most significant fact about the believer's physical existence. Their bodies just so happen to belong to Jesus. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are involved in what we do with our bodies. This is why Paul says in the rest of verse 19, you are not your own. I'd like to think that for the sixth time in this sixth chapter that Paul uses that phrase, do you not know? It was all building to that phrase right there. You are not your own. <laughs> you were bought at a price. Therefore, 
Honor God with your bodies. Paul reminds us that well, not mine anymore. Or like we like to say with the guys on Tuesday nights from our friend of ours who used to live here, I'm really not much, but I'm all I think about. <laughs> <laughs> you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And of course we know what that price was, don't we? Precious blood of Jesus. How can we do less than honor him through an obedient, God-glorifying life instead? Paul says, flee. Put differently, run for the hills from sexual immorality. I wonder if he had Joseph in mind. Maybe. You think? Remember the story? Sure you do. He's working for his boss, working in his house, Mr. Potiphar. And Mr. Potiphar has given Joseph complete rule of the house. But Mrs. Potiphar, she wants to add to his job description. <laughs> Here's what we read in Genesis 39. Now Joseph was a well-built and handsome man. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. What did Joseph do? He fled. <laughs> he ran for the hills. But before he did, do you remember what he said? May it be what we say every time come temptation comes knocking on our door. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Wow. It seems to me Joseph understood a principle that we today have long lost sight of. If we belong to Christ, may we live lives of moral purity, which begins by serving him faithfully and consistently. May we say, may what we say and what we do, what we watch, what we listen to, where we go, all these things are to be done for his glory. Amen? You do not belong to yourself. Good words to live by. What do you think? Yeah? How many of you are glad that you're not the preacher having to preach these sermons? <laughs> there is freedom in these words, my friends. Amen? Freedom. Let's take that freedom that Christ offers and live it. Well, Lord, we, we come before you tonight and we are so thankful that you speak to us and maybe at times in convicting ways. And I pray, God,
that we don't put up false pretenses to somehow think that um, didn't need to hear this. We all need to hear this. We all need to believe this. We all need to embrace this. We all need to live this. All for your honor. All for your glory. Recognizing that we have indeed been bought with a price. And that price that was paid, that blood that was shed, was not so that we could ignore your truth and drag your very presence into very unholy situations. Oh God, may that truth so get a hold of us, change us, and make us different for the rest of our days. For I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift